0: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law... But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the written word that tells us about the living word. That Jesus Christ is the living word. He came as the light to the world. To illuminate us to your your character he is the only begotten of the father who came to explain you and father we thank you that we have that revelation we thank you that he is our savior who died on the cross for our sins we thank you for the fact that Jesus didn't just pop up in history out of nowhere but that there were guidelines there were guideposts there was predictions prophecies symbols signs all through the Old Testament from the time of the first sin in the Garden of Eden all the way through the Old Testament there is prediction after prediction about the coming of this Messiah telling us that he would be both God and man telling us that he would suffer that he would die that he would pay for our sins that he might justify many all of this is in the Old Testament but also that he would come to rule, to reign, that he would establish his kingdom upon the earth. And now as we study the significance of that for our spiritual life, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we put together these various passages from the Old Testament. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in a study of Ephesians. Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 6, makes some significant statements. 2, 5 and 6, actually. 2, 5 tells us that that he has made us alive together with him. Together, in the context, refers to Jew and Gentile, which have previously been uh, dealt with separately, but now in this church age, they are united together in Christ, The sixth verse talks about Christ's session in heaven that we're seated together in Him and in the heavenly places in Christ. So we've been studying that, going back, looking at the ascension of Christ that we have been raised together with Him and looking at the session. So as we put these passages together, we are now looking at the last Old Testament passage, which is Psalm 2, at the coronation of the king. So Ephesians 2.6 tells us that he, that is God, had previously the first thing he did was to make us alive together with him. Secondly, he raised us up together. And third, he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus this is really such a summary statement as i as i have said week after week that little is packed into this however in, if you go back to ephesians 119 and 20 there's reference there to the ascension and the session and again we'll see it in ephesians 417 so this is a major major theme that underlies the teaching of ephesians and there is the assumption that his readers understood the depth of each one of these statements. That as quickly as we repass the phrase that we're seated together with Him in the heavenlies or in Him in the heavenlies, then we pass on instead of stopping and thinking, what does that really mean? That we are seated together with Him. What is this seated business? What is the session? That is the term that is applied. So we've been studying what the Bible teaches about the session of Christ. And we started looking at Old Testament passages. First, we looked at Psalm 110. We looked at verse 1, which is where uh, the the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 4, which says, I have made you a priest according to the order of Melchizedek tying those things together which tells us that the priestly ministry the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is connected to his current session the next thing that we looked at briefly, very briefly was Psalm 68, 18 because this is the psalm that is quoted and paraphrased in Ephesians 4, 7 to 11 and I'm just skipping past that Uh, just to remind us that when Jesus rose, a purpose for that ascension and session is so that he could distribute spiritual gifts to the church. He has told us in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that he needed to ascend so that another comforter would come. So there it's talking about giving the Holy Spirit. So that's another aspect of the necessity of the ascension and the session, but those, those things are related to priestly ministry. The third passage we looked at was in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which we will allude to a couple of times as we go through psalm 2 today is that jesus is now seated at the right hand of the father but he is waiting he is told to sit until i make your enemies your footstool so what's going on he's seated until that happens and psalm 2 tells us when that is going to happen and how that is going to happen and it doesn't happen until the end of the Uh, tribulation period so Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the father and then he will come according to these verses in Daniel 7 he will approach the God the father and his throne Uh, God the father is referred to as the ancient of days and he will then ask for the kingdom why does he ask for the kingdom that's answered in Psalm 2 so this is one of the most significant psalms that we have in the Old Testament related to the Messiah's uh, mission and purpose. So Psalm 2 focuses on the Messiah's victory over those enemies. Now last time I went through an introduction to the Psalms. I'm not going to go back over that, but one of the points I made was that the way the Psalms have been put together has been, I believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. and That was done after the exile, and so there is an order to the Psalms, there's a purpose, there's a structure. Psalm one and Psalm two really fit together, and they serve as the introduction to the Book of Psalms. The Book of Psalms is not just an individual collection of a lot of psalms that got thrown together. There's a, there is rhyme and reason to their organization and structure. Psalm one forty-nine and fifty again are a couplet, and they they represent the conclusion. But that. It's all to be left for another time to study those things in detail. So we saw last time that Psalm two is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. In a number of these passages, Matthew three seventeen and the parallels in Mark one eleven and Luke three twenty two, in Matthew seventeen uh, five again in the uh, Synoptic Gospels of Mark nine seven and Luke nine thirty five, in Acts four twenty four to twenty six as well as Acts thirteen thirty three, which we'll briefly look at as we go through our study today. And also in Hebrews one five and five five, which we'll look at briefly, and Revelation two seven, as well as in the opening verses of Romans one, there is an allusion to this that is significant. We also learn that Psalm two is written by David. It doesn't say that in the superscript neither does it say that in Psalm 1 but as these are written to go together we can assume that because the New Testament uh, writers understood that Psalm 2 was uh, written by David Acts 4.25 uh, where I believe it's Peter talking who says by the mouth of your servant David have said why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things he's quoting Psalm 2 So he tells us that David wrote Psalm 2 under inspiration of Scripture, and so Psalm 1, I would think, was also written by by David. Now, the passage starts off talking about why do the, King James translates it, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So you have this rebellion that begins, that is focused on the beginning. Now, you might look at the first line, especially if you're looking at the old King James Version. It says, why do the heathen rage? Well, that looks like it's a pretty generic statement. Why do the heathen rage? Why are unbelievers angry? But that's not what it's saying. So we have to recognize that that was an inadequate inadequate translation, that this is talking about a specific future situation and that future situation hasn't taken place yet so we need to figure out in god's timetable when is this going to take place and it takes place when the when god the father crowns the lord jesus christ as king installs him as king in jerusalem and that occurs at the end of the tribulation at the second coming when the lord jesus christ comes back So this is what is known as premillennialism, that the pre means before, that Jesus returns before the beginning of the kingdom. And this is important because today we have a lot of people who have very loose understandings of the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom. They talk as if we are in the kingdom. If you're amillennial, that is the view that we're in a spiritual form of the kingdom and Jesus is ruling in heaven now from David's spiritualized, allegorized throne. You have post mills who teach that Jesus comes back at the end of the kingdom. You have progressive dispensationalists who take the same passages and acts the same way that amills do. They think Jesus is on a spiritualized throne. But what's very clear here is that, that Jesus isn't installed as king until he comes to defeat his enemies. That means there's no king, there's no kingdom until Jesus returns at the end of the uh, tribulation. So here's our timeline. Jesus returns at the second coming uh, at the end of the tribulation. Then there will be the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth, and then there is the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment for all uh, unbelievers. Jesus, therefore, is not ruling on David's throne from heaven now, and this is historic dispensational premillennialism. Now, last time I showed you this little organizational chart helps us to understand uh, the structure of psalm two it's very simple there's four parts to it each part has three verses and it's in the in in order the order is set up like a chiasm the, it comes from the greek letter chi or key which is an x and so it's shapes like the left side of an x and it points to the center Whatever is in the center sometimes you have extended chiasms that may have five, eight, twelve different uh, struct, uh, sections, and it always points to the center as the most important, which here is dealing with Yahweh's response to these rebellious kings, and his response is to declare the sonship of the Messiah so that is the centerpiece of this so we'll just go through this each section uh, at a time looking at these three verses in each section Psalm 2.1 King James Version why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing I think I took this from the New American Standard actually why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth uh, take their stand, uh, uh, take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and that is Yahweh there, and against his anointed, the Hebrew is Mashiach, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. So in Psalm 2, 1, it begins, and the... Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This is set up in a parallelism where the second line repeats part of what's in the first line, but then adds something to it. In the parallelism, the term that they have in common is the synonyms of nations and peoples. The Hebrew for nations is the goyim, the Gentiles and the second line talks about the peoples so this is primarily focusing not on the jews but on the gentiles and it, we see when we get into looking at verse 2 talks about the kings of the earth and the rulers so the nations and the people in the first verse are further specified as the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth in verse 2. So, this is looking at those nations who are opposed to God. Now, we see a lot of nations, we see a lot of entities, we see religious theocracies in this world today, such as the religious theocracies of Islam that are set against God. But these are all precursors or they all foreshadow. This ultimate rebellion that takes place during the tribulation period when all of the nations are aligned against God and against Israel. Anti-Semitism will be at its absolute worst during the tribulation period. The Antichrist will make a covenant of peace with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. That's why you know when it begins, according to Daniel uh, chapter 9 verses 24 and 20 twenty five that the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, will sign a treaty with Israel. This provides some protection, but that treaty is broken in the midpoint of the tribulation. The Antichrist will desecrate the temple and set an idol up in the temple to be worshipped as for him to be worshipped as God, and it is at that point that Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation take place, flee to the mountains. So that is when anti-Semitism comes out from its camouflage and the whole world turns against the Jews. This is, uh, Anti-Semitism has always been one of Satan's uh, great strategies to defeat God. If he can destroy the, the, the Jews, destroy Israel where there's no Jew left on the planet, then he, went, he thinks he can win because God then can't fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he'll prove that God really can't can't control things. So that's the backdrop for understanding this. This is not talking about historical nations. This is talking about future Gentile nations, and this is It's interesting. I ended up last time talking about the importance of nations biblically. We live in a world today where you hear from from the left that nationalism is evil, and they have twisted and distorted it. But biblically, nationalism was instituted by God at the Tower of Babel when God divided the languages, and that is referred to in Deuteronomy thirty-two eight when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Inheritance is just a word that basically means property, when he gave them their land. So God distributes land on the earth uh, to nations according to his will. When he separated the sons of man, so when he separated out humanity, how did he do that? He divided up the languages that forced them to isolate themselves in different, different people groups, in different nations. He set the boundaries of the peoples. God set the boundaries. This idea that we don't need to have borders is a direct attack on God's plan in history to keep the nations separate. And I pointed out last time that God in his omniscience knew about all of the evil, all of the wars, all the violence that would uh, come down through human history as a result of territorial wars and battles as a result of of the abuse of nationalism he knew all of that but god also knew that internationalism would be more evil more destructive more terrible and that it was better to have people divided into nations than to have one international body of people with one with one language In Acts 17.26, Paul reiterates this principle, so you can say it's true for the Old Testament, it's true for the New Testament, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times, the rise and the fall of nations, and the boundaries of their dwellings. So God is the one who has established these national distinctions, and God is the one who has established these borders. And to try to turn that back is to recommit the sin of the Tower of Babel, and this is why the UN is an evil organization. And if you've ever been to the UN building, if you go to the front of the UN building, you will see that, and you can go out and do a search on various images for the uh, United Nations headquarters in in, uh, in New York and you will see that they have they have a statue of someone beating uh, swords into plowshares and they quote the verse from Isaiah uh, 2 that they will beat their uh, spears and will be beaten into pruning hooks and their swords into plowshares and man will make war no more." that is a description of the millennial kingdom so the UN is saying we're going to bring in the kingdom we are the messianic agency so the UN itself is anti-messiah it is anti-biblical and it is seeking to do what only what only God can do so that is a picture of the kings of the earth being hostile to God it's just not the fulfillment of this passage so the use of these two terms goyim for the Gentiles and am laom for the people uh, focus on the Gentile nations as opposed to Israel even though the Israel is sometimes called uh, am Israel which is the same word translated as peoples the context here is talking about uh, non-Jews it's clarified by that, that first, first statement and this is further explained in Psalm 2:2 2, 2, that the kings of the earth are those gentiles its folk and and that term itself is is significant we'll look at it in just a minute so it says why are the nations in an uproar uh, the king james translated why do the nations rage that's just not our why do the heathen rage it's not heathen it's goyim the gentiles and it's not raging either the word that is translated uproar is the hebrew word ragash which means to plot a rebellion to conspire against and they are devising a vain thing devising is in uh, synonymous parallelism with uproar and this is a hebrew word hagah which sometimes is used to refer to meditation meditating on the scripture it means to moan or to whisper so when you are memorizing something and you're saying it over and over to yourself you are you're, you're whispering or talking to yourself and memorizing a passage so that's where it comes it comes to be applied to uh, to meditation but here it is the whispering of rebels who are developing a plot to rebel against god and this is then uh, defined or described as something that is empty or vain they're de- devising a vain thing they're devising something it's impossible for them to bring about they're just in a fantasy world thinking that somehow they can throw off the authority of god and live apart from him and so this is further expanded then in psalm 2 2 the kings of the earth take their stand uh, the um New King James says the kings of the earth set themselves. So they have taken up a position totally against God. And then the second line in parallelism to that says that the rulers, the that is the kings of the earth, take counsel together against the Lord. So we have our first divine personage mentioned here, the Lord, Yahweh, and against a second personage the anointed in the hebrew there is mashiach so we have yahweh god the father and we have the anointed one the mashiach who will be later identified as the king now this phrase kings of the earth is is significant and it's interesting to read through and i have i've got several verses i'm going to just throw up on the screen to show you, but what's interesting is it's much broader than just the the few verses that I'm showing you, that this is a term that is used again and again in Scripture. It is a technical term for the nations that have arrayed themselves against against the plan of God, and it's almost all eschatological. It's all talking about this future battle against God. Isaiah 24:21 says, "...it shall come to pass in that day." When we see the phrase, "...in that day in the prophets," it almost always refers to this end-time uh, battle, this end-time war that takes place just before the establishment of the kingdom. "...it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones." and on earth the kings of the earth. Now this is interesting because what it shows is that the end-time battle at the end of the tribulation isn't just the Lord Jesus Christ returning against the human armies of the Antichrist, but he is also going to defeat Satan and the fallen angels. So he is dealing with two enemies, and when I we went through Revelation about a decade ago that was one of the things i pointed out that in the second half of the uh, tribulation that satan is thrown to the earth and i believe that the demons and satan are all made visible to mankind just as they were prior to the flood of noah so that god is going to bring all the rebellious forces together on the earth human and angelic and then there's going to be this great final judgment Upon them in Revelation six fifteen we read and the kings of the earth this is at the this is the sixth the time of the sixth seal judgment in Revelation six fifteen. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders of mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. So this is talking about all of the rulers of those nations that are arrayed against God aligned with the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Revelation sixteen fourteen connects this with the spirit of demons for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth showing that they are demon influenced and of the whole world to gather them together to the to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. That's the battle of Armageddon. It's named for the the valley that runs uh, to the southeast from Haifa that is also known as the Valley of Jezreel, and it's just below the hill of Megiddo, which is a, a very ancient settlement. Some of you have been there with me. And it has, last time I was there, every time I go it's a different number, around 30 or 32 layers of settlements. So it's it's ancient. Solomon had his chariot corps stationed there. It's on the crossroads of the major trade routes. And this is a, a an incredibly long valley, and it's fed from the only deep water port in the eastern Mediterranean, which is at Haifa. So that's a great place for ships to come in and offload all of their troops and equipment and everything else necessary to go into a huge battle. Revelation 17.2 says, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, talking about Babylon, that, that revived Babylon uh, in, the, in the end times. The kings of the earth committed fornication with the, the, the empire of the Antichrist. Revelation 17.18, and the woman... This this is the empire of Babylon, the empire of the Antichrist. The woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So this is the whole of the satanic uh, civilization that is led by the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 18.3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. 18.9, Eighteen nine, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her. So all of these refer to this this group of of Gentile kingdoms that are allied together under the authority of the Antichrist in the end times. So this is when we read this phrase in Psalm two two, this is a technical term that is carried out through Scripture related to the end-time battle at, at Armageddon. Psalm 89:27, which is a prayer based on the Davidic covenant. We spent some time studying it last year. We read in verse 27, God is speaking, Also, I will make him, that is the Davidic heir, talking about the Messiah, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this is why his title in Revelation 19 is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will defeat them. When he's, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings indicates his defeat of those kings. Revelation 1.5, in the introduction to the prophecy of the book of Revelation, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So that really helps us understand that this has a prophetic significance. It is talking about something that it comes in the future at the end of days. The kings of the earth take their stand, so they set themselves against the Lord. The rulers take counsel together Against Yahweh, God the Father, and against His anointed—that is, the Messiah—and then we come to verse three, and we read what they say. This is—I uh, have a couple of different translations up here. The New King James says, "Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us." The uh, Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible says, "Let us tear off their chains." and free ourselves from their restraints. Both of those do a good job of reflecting what the Hebrew says. Then Psalm 2-4, we read, uh, He who sits, getting into the second part, this is God's response to the conspiracy of the kings of the earth, the whisperings and mutterings of the Gentiles, and we read of his response in verses 4 through 6, the response of Yahweh and His Messiah, the Anointed One. Psalm 2.4 we read, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord, and here it's not Yahweh, it's Adonai. He's referring to God the Father, shall hold them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, but, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, I want to stop here a minute and while we have these three verses up here, because when you look at verse five, it just says, "Then he will speak." I have read some commentaries will, who say that the one who speaks is is the Messiah. And he speaks to them, and but that doesn't make sense because what he continues to say in verse 6 is, as for me, I, will, I have installed my king upon Zion. So this only makes sense if it is God the Father who is the one sitting in the heavens and the, on, on his throne, not the Messiah sitting at the right hand uh, of the Father. But the language reminds us of, of Psalm 110.1. So in Psalm 2:4, we read, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Adonai, God the Father, shall hold them in derision. Now, I want you to notice that in the next three verses here, we have it, uh, the first phrase, he who sits, is translated in uh, the Holman Bible and the NET as the one enthroned. I think that is a good translation. That's the significance of the of the verb, as we'll see, see in just a minute. It is the word Yashav. Interesting, you have in Israel you have kibbutzim. A kibbutz is a um was a communal village that was established back in the late 19th century. Then you also have moshavs. A moshav is a with the M in the front is a noun based on this verb yashav it's a dwelling place okay so that's one of the meanings of this root word yashav but it means to also to sit and it is frequently used to describe someone who's sitting on a throne now when you look at that in the sense that this is one who is enthroned It also reminds us that that this is the same word that's used in Psalm 110.1, where Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he is sitting, though, according to Revelation 3.21, Jesus says that he sat on his father's throne. So he is sitting there on on his father's throne. He's not on his own throne yet because he hasn't been, been crowned, as we will see as we go through this. Through This passage. So, as these verses are translated by uh, the Holman translation and the NET, it should be understood as the one enthroned in heaven and that it is God the Father uh, contextually. But what is he doing? Well, this may shock some people, but God is making fun of these unbelievers. They have gathered their armies together. They're shaking their fist at God. They are conspiring together. They are going to defeat God and throw off his, his uh, laws, his rules, and, and they're going to make their own kingdom. We see so many people who have that same mentality today, but God looks at them and he laughs in ridicule. This is a Hebrew word, sachak, which means to sneer or to taunt to laugh in derision, or simply to deride, to mock and to scorn. Now, we are all been pretty much taught that you need to respect other people's religious beliefs, even if they're wrong. God is not a respecter of other people's religious beliefs. In fact, he ridicules them, he mocks them, because it's vanity, it's just emptiness. They're, they're worshiping idols that, that in and of themselves, they're nothing, even though they are... Uh, empowered by demons and so God laughs in ridicule and this is made a parallel in the passage with the last line uh, that he in, in this translation he holds them in derision I'm translating it he taunts them and this is a second word the word at the bottom of the screen la'ag, which has the idea to mock to deride to jeer to make fun of or to show contempt. So I think Taunt picks up that idea. He is showing that he has great contempt for these rebels, that they're trying to do something It's impossible. They think that they are going to throw off God's rule? That would be like some little bitty ant that you see saying to you that he's going to, to throw you down and stomp you to death. It just is not ever going to happen it's impossible so we read that he who sits enthroned in the heavens is god the father laughs in ridicule of the kings of the earth we think they have such great power and we you know people are so concerned about reading all the tabloids about what's going on with the royal families in europe the royal family of in england and everything and yet god just looks at all of these rebellious rulers with all their power, all their armies, all their uh, alleged strength as, as meaningless, and it's just nothing. And he just he ridicules them, and he ta- taunts them. The second verse describing God's response, first of all, he laughs at them, he ridicules and taunts them. Then he speaks to them in his wrath and distresses them in his deep displeasure. This is the New King James uh, tra- translation. The other translations are a little bit different, so I put them up on the screen as well. New American Standard says he will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury. They almost all use the word anger uh, for that first word. New King James uses wrath there. These terms are somewhat, uh, somewhat overlap. Then in the second line, terrifying them in his fury. NASB uses fury, NET uses rage, and then the Holman uses wrath, which I think is a better, better term. I think it's it's a better term for theological theological reasons. But we need to look at this response because there's some interesting things in this passage. The first word is the word then. What does then mean? Well, this tells us that we're we're talking about a timeline, that there's an order of events here. First, we have the kings of the earth are uh, conspiring to rebel against God and to throw off his authority. Then we have God's response to them. He laughs. He ridicules them. He derides them. Then, after that, then he speaks to them in his fury and his speaking to them the parallel is this word to terrify when god speaks they are terrified they are scared to death we we think just of someone who's a believer like Isaiah before the throne of God, and when he realizes he's before the throne of God, he just falls down on his face saying, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He's confronted with the righteousness and holiness of God, and he's a believer as opposed to these unbelievers who have who are not saved, and they are confronted face to face with the justice and righteousness of God and what they're what their judgment, what their punishment will be. So this word, then, is a very important timeline word that first there's this united conspiracy of rebellion. God laughs at them, and then he's going to speak to them. And the speaking to them is what comes up in verse 6, which is when he declares the sonship of the Messiah. That doesn't happen until the end, until the time of this rebellion. And that rebellion, as we've seen, doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation. This just completely destroys the whole amillennial concept and the whole postmillennial concept, as well as this idea that we're already in the kingdom but not yet fully here, which is so dominant among evangelicals today. Now, the word translated anger is very interesting. I remember somebody writing an article some years ago, a friend of mine, and he was arguing that, well, God has emotion. And I wrote him a letter and I said, I think you need to rethink a lot of things here. Uh, first of all, the word the, there's no place at no equivalent in Hebrew or Greek to the word emotion. The English word emotion didn't get coined until you get into the late 1700s there were other ways more precise ways that these things were discussed earlier scott annual has developed a lot on this he'll be a speaker at the uh, chafer conference i've asked him to develop the thinking on this a little bit because people just really don't understand a lot of these things but in in classical education and during the period of the scholastics in the middle ages they understood there was there was a difference between the passions anger, hate, uh, envy, jealousy, and the affections of the intellect. And the intellectual affections are attracted to that which is compatible with them. And they are not emotions as we think of emotions. So God would be thought of as having these intellectual affections. They are affections of, of the mind. Well, one of my points was that when you look at all of the words that describe anger in the Old Testament, they're all rooted in this word "off." Af literally means your nose. And it is often uh, used in conjunction with another word that means burning. And we'll see that in the second line where it says uh, his fury, that's his burning, so, it's really what is called an anthropomorphism. Now, an anthropomorphism is a big word which just means that we're assigning to God a physical human attribute that he doesn't actually possess. We talk about the eyes of God going to and fro on the earth. We talk about the finger of God. We talk about the arm of God, the hand of God. But God does not have a hand, a finger, or an eye, God is a spirit. So we just use these human physical attributes because they communicate and help us understand something about infinite God and his plans and purposes and policies. Well, an anthropopathism, from a word that relates to emotion, an anthropopathism is the same kind of thing. It's taking a human emotion and using using it to describe God so that we can understand something beyond our comprehension in terms of a, of a common frame of, of reference so it uses a human emotion that God does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's purpose, plan, and policy now what am I saying here? when you look at the passages that talk about God's anger what it is saying is God's nose is burning, literally but does God have a nose? no, he doesn't So it's using an anthropomorphism as an anthropopathism. Now, that gets real confusing. It's using a physical form, attributing a physical human form to God to talk about a physical, I mean, to talk about an emotion. Because in Hebrew, you didn't have a word really that meant just straight up anger I think there is one, but in most places it uses this figure of speech. Somebody gets angry, their face turns red, their nose is burning. And so that is an anthropomorphism that is used to describe this anthropopathism. But it it goes a little, a little further. The second word that's used that's translated fury is the word charon, which means burning or heat. Okay, now that we've got that together. It's like going into court today. Let's say... You go to court, you got caught speeding, you're doing 70 miles an hour in a school zone. That is not looked upon with favor. It's not ever looked upon with even the least little bit of sympathy. So you go to court, and the maximum penalty is leveled against you. How do we describe that using a figure of speech? That judge threw the book at me. Well, did he literally throw the book at you? No, Was he even angry? Well, maybe, but probably not. Because we don't want a judge to be emotional. We want him to be somewhat dispassionate and objective about the application of the law. But because it's so harsh, we use strong, harsh idioms in order to express that. And so these terms, the wrath of God, the anger of God are simply terms to express the actions of God's justice towards man that are very strong and what appear to us to be harsh. And so we use these terms, the wrath of God, the anger of God, but they're used in a figure of speech sort of way. And they the kings of the earth will be terrified. They're going to be horrified when they are face to face with the justice of God and they are going to reap what they have sown and God is going to penalize them to the fullest extent of divine justice and they will be sent to the lake of fire and they are terrified by that the third verse in this opening response is God's statement he says but as for me I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So this has got to be God the Father speaking, which means he's the one who's enthroned. And he says that he has done something. He has installed his king. This is a Hebrew word that, that has this idea of, using, of, of, of installing somebody, crowning somebody. It's the coronation of the new king. And this happens, and where is he installed? on on Mount Zion. Now, Zion is used about four different ways in the Scripture. It's used to refer to the Temple Mount, but the Temple Mount actually is not on uh, Mount Zion itself, but it's often applied there. Mount Zion is the mountain that is, or hill, that is just to the southeast of the Temple Mount, which is Mount Moriah. And it is also used to describe Jerusalem, And the fourth way is it's just used as a term to describe all of Israel. If you're pro-Israel, you're a Zionist. So you've got four different ways in which that word Zion is used. But guess what? It's never, ever used of heaven. Not once. So it's not talking about this installation occurring in heaven. It occurs on Mount Zion in Jerusalem where the king of Jerusalem and the king of the world, this greater son of David, will be crowned king and installed in his kingdom. So this is this is just profound. And when he says, my king, that refers back to the Messiah. So the king here is the anointed one. He will rule and reign over his kingdom, but he's not crowned king until he comes to defeat his enemies, the ones that will be made his footstool, according to Psalm the second part of that response tells us something of the relationship between Yahweh and the Messiah and this focuses on a decree in Psalm 2.7 these verses read I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord now the speaker shifts here the speaker in 4 through 6 was God the Father the speaker here is the anointed one it's the king It says, I will tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. So obviously the me here is referring now to Jesus, to the Messiah. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you, give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So let's look at this first verse, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So the Messiah is going to announce what God decreed in the past. This uh, word to surely tell is the Hebrew word or verb sa'far in an intensive form, and the root is to count. Now, this was the word that was used for scribes. Scribes were called the sofers or the soferim for the plural. A sofer was the word for counting. Why were they called that? Because when they were copying the scripture, they wanted to make sure they got it right, so they would go back and count every letter, and every word, and every sentence line on the page to make sure everything was right. So that's why that term was used. It it has the idea also of uh, in, in the intensive stem of recounting or of declaring something. Technically, in the grammar, this is what has a sense of what's called an iterative sense, which means this is something that is done over and over again. It's not continuously nonstop. It's just something that that is done many different times, separated by some gap in between. So that tells us that this announcement, this decree about the sonship of the Messiah is something that is stated more than one time in history so he says i will tell you of the decree of the lord he said to me you are my son today i have begotten you so this phrase decree relates to some sort of ordinance or statute or law or covenant so here it refers to the the davidic covenant where in second samuel 7:14 God promised to David, related to his descendant, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now, David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16, 12-13. But David is not called king, he doesn't have the authority of king, the power of king, and he's not king until he's crowned when he comes to Hebron in 2 Samuel chapter 2. There's anywhere from five to ten years between those two events. That is analogous to the fact that Jesus is anointed by John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry. That's comparable to his being anointed, but he doesn't become king until he returns. With David, during that time between being anointed and the time that he takes the throne, he is gathering to himself a bunch of just you know these are men who are considered uh, unruly they are considered outcasts they are considered rebels against uh, uh, against Saul and they are called David's mighty men they become the cadre of his later administration that's analogous to the fact that in this church age we are being called out we are the fools for Christ's sake And we are the ones who are being trained in our spiritual life now. While Jesus is waiting on the throne for his kingdom, we church-age believers are being trained, equipped. That's why we get back to this again in, in Ephesians 4, 7 to 11. We are being trained and equipped to come back with Jesus as his cadre to rule and reign with him in the messianic kingdom. So all of this ties back. All of this is packed into that one little phrase that we're seated together in him. It's all related to priesthood and preparation. So the announcement that is made, the decree that is made, is you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The interesting thing is that, I don't have time to develop this. Abraham had a son that's called the only begotten. It's Isaac. Did he have another son? Yeah, he did. He had Ishmael. Did he have other sons later? He sure did. But the designation of the heir is made by a pronouncement in the ancient Near East, you are my son. This is even spelled out in the code of Hammurabi, and which, pre, which preceded the law of, of Moses. So this fits. This is the designation of the heir. Today I have begotten you. Now this, this phrase, tod- uh, today I've begotten you, is based on a verb, yalat, which often is translated to bear or to give birth. You've read it. So and so beget so and so, so and so beget so and so, so and so beget so and so. That's the basic verb. But in several passages, it is talking about some sort of distinctive relationship or identity with someone. And it has the idea here because it's translated by the, uh, based on the Messi on the Masoretic text one way but it's probably causative or declarative, and it means I will declare your sonship, which fits the passage. I'll show you where when we get into New Testament. I'll declare your sonship. You are my son. This day I have declared your sonship. You are the heir. That's what the next verse is going to talk about uh, when we look at verse uh, 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. This is all related to the possessions that will be given the son as the designated heir of the father to receive the kingdom. In Acts 13.33, we read, God has fulfilled this for us, as, for us their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have declared your sonship. The resurrection was a declaration that Jesus is the son of God. That's what this is saying. In Romans one four, uh, Paul says, "And declare to be the Son of God with power." He understood that phraseology back there in in verse seven. I will declare the decree as that this is a a, a declaration of something. This is declarative. It is uh, not just a, a a statement. I'm declaring you to be the Son of God with power. According to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, and Hebrews five five uses that same that same language. We see it also alluded to this idea of being begotten. In that, I had to correct the translation, which everybody does because most English versions just distort it and, and butcher it. The last phrase in Psalm one hundred ten three should be translated according to several uh, authorities from the womb of the dawn. I have begotten you. So we have this idea, this again, another connection with Psalm 110. This idea of being only begotten is explained by Alan Ross in his commentary on the Psalms. I just thought this was so good. I had to quote him. The verb begotten in its literal sense refers to a child who shares the nature of the father, as opposed to words like made or created. To describe Jesus as begotten indicates that he has the nature of the Father, that is, divine and eternal. And if he is eternal, then begotten refers to nature and not a beginning. This description is figurative. This is why the Nicene Creed clarifies the point, Jesus is begotten, not made. When Scripture uses begotten in that sense, the expression includes uh, only begotten, monogenes. There is only one person who shares the divine nature of the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse 8, and verse 8 is that verse... Where the father tells him, "Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance." This happens at the end of the session. This is what Daniel 7:13 and 14 is talking about. First, the father says, "Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance." And then the Son of Man comes to the ancient of days and requests the kingdom. That lays out the chronology. And then he's given the nations as his possession. That's what these two words mean. They mean inheritance, possession, property. He's given the kingdom. That becomes his. And so Ross makes the comment here. He says, when God gives his son the kingdom, these nations will be his inheritance. Ultimately, this will take place when the anointed king receives the kingdom. So it's not now. He's not a king on David's throne as progressive dispensationalists say he is at the right hand of the father sitting on the father's throne, waiting to be given the kingdom because he's building his church the last verse in this section describes his reign you will break them with a rod of iron you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel what's interesting is this word these were, this is very graphic. He's gonna break them. He's gonna shatter them. He's gonna disperse them. Uh, they are just gonna be pulverized by this rod of iron, which the word for rod also refers to a ruling scepter. So he is going to be a ruler. His kingdom is going to pulverize these rebellious nations. Then we come to the last three verses. Now therefore, O kings, be instructed. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The kings of the earth are given a warning to submit to the Son for blessing. Otherwise, they will tremble under divine judgment the tenth verse simply emphasizes the fact that they need to learn from this correction and this rebuke the phrase uh, at the beginning now therefore O kings be instructed literally means to be wise as the NET has it and the Holman has it so I would translate it now therefore O kings be wise be prudent understand what's happened but they don't and then they this next line says be warned simply that just to take instruction from this this is a rebuke be warned respond to that verse 11 then goes on to say serve the lord with fear this is the positive listen to the instruction be warned and then serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling Now, I'm not going to... I don't have time to go into the details. The NET struck me. It's so different. Every other version says rejoice with trembling, rejoice with trembling. Literally, the word means to rejoice, but they translated it repent. What's interesting is the word that is used here for repent is used in a parallelism. I mean, the, the word that's translated rejoice is used in a parallelism in... Uh, hosea in hosea ten five it's translated shriek and it's in a parallelism to mourn and what it is focusing on, I think in that passage is that that when they are confronted with their rebellion and who God is, they shriek in terror, and that fits the context better just as it fits the context better in hosea chapter ten uh, verse five. It is talking about not rejoicing, but they're shrieking with trembling. And the word that is used for trembling is a word that that refers to those who are just absolutely scared, witless. They just have no hope whatsoever. Pro, they are to serve the Lord with fear. That reminds us of Proverbs one seven that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But they are fools. They have rejected God. They have said in their heart, there is no God. And then at the end, we're told to kiss the Son, that it literally has the idea of doing homage to the Son, lest He be angry, lest He judge you. Be obedient to the Son, lest He bring His harsh justice against you. When His wrath is kindled but a little. And then the positive reflecting the first line of Psalm 1, a statement of blessing blessed are those who put their trust in him that word for trust is the hebrew word chasa. i expected a different word there Chasa is a word that means to take refuge to hide in the rock that is our god it's used in psalm 2 uh, psalm 2:12 here For his judicial wrath may ignite at a moment. All those who take refuge in him are blessed. Psalm 511. But let all those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Same word there. Let them seek refuge in you. Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God, my strength, in whom I will take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So what we see in Psalm 2 is the king is crowned when he returns and defeats his enemies at the end of the tribulation. He's waiting now. He is not functioning as prophet or king. He's functioning as priest. He is training us, the church age, to be his cadre, to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. And so when we read Ephesians uh, 2, 6, that we are seated together in him, that shows that close identification with that high priestly ministry to be trained. That is our identity now. And so this is a a great encouragement to us to align ourselves with that plan and purpose, not to try to bring in the kingdom, not to get confused with all these other uh, erroneous theologies, but to focus on our spiritual life so that we will be prepared for when he returns for our future destiny to rule and reign with him in the kingdom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to just reflect on on these tremendous truths that are interconnected in the Old Testament from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 68 and to see how they're brought together to give us a, a much greater, deeper insight into who we are in Christ, that we are seated with Him. There is a purpose to His session and that we are identified with that positionally, legally. That is our identity and so experientially we need to align with that give us that desire that motivation that encouragement to to push forward to to become to to excel in our spiritual life in preparation for the future not just to to relax and take everything take everything for granted but to to move forward to trust in you Father, we pray anyone listening to this message who's never trusted Christ as Savior, may they recognize that Jesus is this Messiah and he has already come once to pay for our sins and so all of our sins are paid for and we are to trust in him for that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We have eternal life. We're identified with him only by trusting in him. It is not a matter of doing good works. It's not a matter of somehow convincing you we're worthy of salvation. It is simply to trust in Christ because he did it all on the cross. Father, we pray that you would make that gospel message clear to those who listen. And for those of us who are believers, that we might recognize that we are not to live like unbelievers, like the uh, kings of the earth who conspire against you, who chafe at your control and your authority, but that we are to align ourselves uh, with the Lord. We are identified with him seated in heaven, but yet there is a training mission before us and that we need to respond to that challenge. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.